Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Invisible World with your host, Frank Todaro. Yes, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 171 of The Invisible World on this January 19th, 2015. I'm your host, Frank Todaro. Well, this is the first show of the new year, and we're starting things off with a bang. We've got a lot to talk about later, a whole lot of news stories to get through. But here at the top of the show, I wanted to get a quick plug out first. Later this week, Thursday the 22nd to be exact, I'm giving a live multimedia lecture on spirit photography and paranormal perception during the 1800s over at the uh, People's Improv Theater, The Pit. So if you're in New York City or around the area looking for something fun to do, a pretty awesome space, come on out at 7 o'clock next Thursday. Tickets, I believe, are $5 or $1 if you're a student. Now, here's the fun part. After the show, I'm going to be sitting out front in the bar area. If you've not been to the uh, to the pit, as it's abbreviated, the Pe- People's Improv Theater. They have a pretty amazing bar space alone. The front is, is, is fantastic. So I'll be setting up camp at the table, and, uh, and I'll have my little handheld portable studio with me to record your ghost stories. So in a future episode, I'm going to be airing some of these things. So come with your stories ready, and, uh, and I will record you telling them. Pretty cool. In other news, the, uh, the music episode that normally airs on New Year's Eve, has been delayed a bit. And it'll be posted to the website and to iTunes within the next few weeks. There are reasons for this, though. The good news here is that we're actually going to have a debut, a never-heard-before song from former guest Sandflower, and a track written specifically for The Invisible World by J.D. Vila. It's uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, We're going to have some tracks from one of my new favorite local bands, Four Eyes, and, and more. So stay tuned for that. Which brings me to another point. This year we're going to be doing a lot more interviews on the program. I'm in talks with some pretty amazing folks right now uh, who are doing some amazing things in various disciplines, both of the hard sciences and the less widely accepted ones. But I want to hear your opinion. Do you have an idea for a show, a guest, or a topic you're itching to learn more about? I assure you that I am more than likely as excited as you are about these things. So don't hold them to yourself. Please shoot me an email at theinvisibleworldshow at gmail.com or send me a message through Facebook, the Facebook page, uh, uh, facebook.com slash theinvisibleworldshow or just send me a message, a message through the Paranormal A radio network. The links are all in the show notes. That's our Canadian affiliate, Terry Koenig. All that stuff will get back to me as well. And lastly, speaking of the Paranormal A radio network, Terry, the station head over there, and I recently co-hosted the first episode of a new show, UFO History Lesson. We've already gotten some great feedback on the program and a whole bunch of live tweets, actually, asking questions throughout, and then we answered some of them on the air. It was just super fun. So if you have a half hour and want to hear me play the bad cop on the air, check it out. I'll put it down in the show notes as well. But for now, it's been a while, and the world of the weird and wonderful keeps on turning. Sound like a 1950s announcer. It's now time for the Paranormal News.
As always, sort of uh, easing in here with science news. It's from the, uh, from the website Sky News. New Horizons, the little grand piano-sized superhero of the stars, back in the news. As you know, it's uh, set to do a flyby of uh, Pluto, where it's going to gather new, never-before info of our favorite former planet. I say, as you know, because I blather on and on about New Horizons quite a bit on this show, kind of a passion of mine. I actually had the honor of presenting on her at the uh, World Science Fair for the Traveling Space Museum, and consequently we've talked extensively about a little ship that could on the show. Launched back in 2006, the New Horizons probe spent the better part of its 1,873-day journey hibernating to preserve its electrical components for when it arrives at its destination, Pluto. Now, up until now, studies of Pluto have been limited to what can be determined through telescopes, so any pictures returned by New Horizons will be the first close-up images ever taken. Now, the rendezvous is scheduled to take place in July. However, the reason why we're talking about this now is that the probe is now close enough that within the next few weeks, it should be able to start returning some really impressive photographs of Pluto. Uh, I've got a quote here uh, from the project scientist Dr. Hal Weaver saying, for decades, we thought Pluto was this odd little body on the planetary outskirts. Now we know it's really a gateway to an entire region of new worlds in the Kuiper Belt. New Horizons is going to provide the first close-up look at them. So Pluto's still got some clout there. You know, it's a gateway planetoid. Here's a joke in there. Now staying out there for a bit, the Dawn spacecraft is back in the news as it's on its final approach to Ceres, Astronomy Magazine reported. NASA's exploratory orbiter is due to go into orbit around this enigmatic dwarf planet this March. That's right around the corners. Launched in 2007, uh, it's already seen it spend about 14 months in orbit around a Vesta protoplanet located in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Now it's on its way to Ceres. Uh, it's a dwarf planet in the same region of the solar, fis- solar system where no spacecraft has gone before. So this is going to be the first guy out there. Small worlds got a diameter of about 590 miles. Nonetheless, the largest object in the asteroid belt and may even be home to some subterranean ocean of liquid water, for lack of a better term. The mission will be the first to see a spacecraft orbit two separate bodies. And it's been made possible thanks to Dawn's pioneering ion propulsion system, which is a lot more efficient than the conventional chemical propulsion. Uh, saying here, the, uh, the chief engineer, mission director, Mark Raymond, saying orbiting both Vesta and Ceres would be truly impossible with conventional propulsion. Thanks to ion propulsion, we're about to make history as the first spaceship ever to orbit two unexplored alien worlds. Sounds like something out of Star Trek. And sticking with space news here, it's rumored that we might have found the missing Mars probe Beagle. This poor little guy disappeared without a trace after reaching Mars more than 10 years ago. It was led by the late planetary scientist Colin Pillinger. The Beagle 2 mission was an ambitious attempt to look for signs of life on Mars. Now, the probe, which had been carrying a a digging tool and an onboard drilling instrument, hitched a ride to the red planet on Mars Express Orbiter, the Mars Express Orbiter. After decoupling and heading down through the planet's atmosphere, however, it disappeared without a trace never to be heard from again. Clearly the Decepticons. Despite search efforts covering more than a decade, 
the fate of Beagle 2 has always remained somewhat of a mystery. But now, scientists operating on the high-rise camera on NASA's Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, they've announced that they soon will be revealing a quote-unquote update on the Beagle 2 mission, of course prompting speculation that the probe might have finally have been found. Now, in related news here, it's a different story, but uh, definitely connected. Very exciting. Uh, way to bury the lead, Frank. Discovery News just posted that a ge- geobiologist has identified structures on Mars that she believes were created by microbial life. There have been a lot of claims about strange objects being spotted and photographs of Mars, but now Nornofsky, a geobiologist of the Old Dominion University in Virginia, has unveiled some intriguing new evidence to suggest that life may have actually flourished there. Her research is centered on a photograph taken by NASA's Curiosity rover. We're not talking about stone lizards or weird faces. Uh, The Gillespie Lake outcrop is what this picture is of. She believes that it shows some sedimentary, uh, sedimentary rock structures that match similar structures in Earth that are known to have been created by microbial life forms. Having studied these structures on our own planet for the better part of 20 years, her analysis of the corresponding structures on Mars is certainly a compelling one. Gillespie Lake itself is thought to be somewhat around the 3.7 billion years old, so these fossils would have been formed a pretty long time ago, she says. Actually, I got a quote from her here saying, All I can say is, here's my hypothesis, and here's all the evidence I have. Although I do think that this evidence is a lot at this point, I'd like to, uh, all I'd like to do is point out these similarities. Further evidence must be provided to verify the hypothesis. So we're excited about it, and it's exciting, but she's not too excited to sort of say X is marking the spot. While promising her findings at this stage are still pretty controversial, and it might take a very long time before it's confirmed that these structures were made by these tiny extraterrestrials, but still pretty darn cool. Now I'm going to take a turn here. We're sticking with crafts zipping over our heads through the cosmos, but we're going to descend a bit more into the uh, the theoretical, theoretical end of things with this article from Russia Today. The Indian Science Congress drew criticism last week over a lecture about 7,000-year-old airplanes. The event, which took place in Mumbai on Sunday, included a controversial lecture by Captain Anad Bodas on the topic of ancient airplane technology. According to Bodas, Hindu texts dating back to thousands of years ago include references to ancient forms of aviation, including an aircraft that could not only travel freely in any direction, but could actually leave the planet entirely and fly through space. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, if you're listening to this show, the concept is probably not new to you. But the story here, the takeaway here, is that he was allowed to give this at such a uh, prestigious event, this this lecture. Uh, He said during his presentation, the basic structure was that of 60 by 60 feet, in some cases over 200 feet. There are these jumbo planes. Ancient planes had 40 small engines, according to him. Now, his conclusions, as well as the fact that his lecture was even permitted at all, given the serious nature of this event, has drawn significant criticism from some of the other participants. Uh, One NASA scientist started a petition to demand that this lecture be canceled 
uh, is particularly vocal in his condemnation of it, saying, uh, if we scientists remain passive, we are betraying not only the science, but also our children. The event's organizers, meanwhile, defended their decision to allow the lecture to go forward on the basis that the ancient Hindu texts contained a vast knowledge of science. So basically saying that in that same book was some stuff we've revealed to be true by this point in our studies. So why not include giant 40-engined 200-foot jumbo planes that could go any direction and fly into space? Well, I want it to be true. Now, staying with rumors realized news from the New York Post, an underground World War II complex used to develop nuclear weapons has been unearthed in Austria. The facility was discovered in the town of St. Georgian Andergusen, hope I'm saying that right, by Austrian filmmaker Andreas Sulzer. After years of anomalous radiation readings, and the area uh, pointed this out, uh, the existence of a secret nuclear weapons development site. The 75-acre complex, thought to have been run by SS General Hans Kammler, it's located near the uh, B-8 Burgerstahl factory where the first jet fighters were developed. Sulzer believes that this facility would have relied on forced labor and was manned by inmates who were, uh, I guess, chosen for their skills in physics, chemistry, and other sciences. Uh, he says up to 320,000 inmates are said to have died because of the brutal conditions in this subterranean labyrinth, his words. Now, how close the Nazis actually got to developing weapons of mass, uh, mass destruction is uh, it's unclear. But, again, a quote from Seltzer saying, we owe it to the victims to finally open the site and reveal the truth. Now, excavations of the facility are expected to resume next month. All right, now, enough of our potentially dark past. Let's talk about the bright and gleaming, oh, a bit unnerving, future. From the site vice.com, about two weeks ago now, neuroscientist Randall Cohn envisions a future in which the human mind could live forever within a computer. Now, on the show, we've talked about the idea of uh, humanity being superseded by artificially intelligent machines. There's the whole uh, John von Neumann deal from the 50s, Ray Kurzweil, even Stephen Hawking has had some statements buzzing about in pop science articles for, for some time now. Now, this is sort of a related future scenario where we would still sort of play an important role. Randall uh, Cohn has been working on this, uh, building a way to emulate the human brain using machines. Well, now he believes we will eventually be able to upload our own consciousness into a computer and effectively live forever. Again, not a new idea to the world of science fiction, which I'm sure you guys have all read something of that along this line, but keep in mind, this is not science fiction. He's, his idea of the future could see our minds existing within an artificial brain that could either be connected to a physical machine or body or, or to a virtual world existing within a networked cloud. Everything from emotion to self-awareness would remain in, uh, intact, and we'd be able to interact seamlessly both with the computer environment and with the minds of other people. Now here uh, is a quote from him saying, A worm's mind has already been uploaded, but their brains work in a very different way to mammals, clearly. But in ten years, I think it's possible, ten years, 
to upload the mind of a fruit fly. From there on, the human brain is a little hard to predict, but I really hope it will be within my lifetime. Yeesh, I hope so too, with all this work. I mean, I hope he gets to enjoy the fruits of his efforts. Uh, wow, what do you guys think, actually? Would you do it? Say this is somehow perfected and you have the idea to upload your consciousness so you can live forever as a robot. First of all, I'm assuming that would just mean that there'd be two of you. I don't think it would delete your brain, so to speak, from what the rest of this article says. And I'll, I'll post this up to the site, too. But would you do it? Now, as I look out the, uh, the studio window here, I'm noticing that it, there's actually a little bit of flurries outside, gently wafting flakes of white, slowly falling to the ground. Which brings me to this next story, more of an infographic that was posted recently. It's through the Smithsonian Magazine. Contrary to the popular metaphor, snowflakes are actually only ever one of 35 possible shapes. Often said to be unique... You guys know the uh, old saying, you're, you're unique, like a snowflake. You're one of a kind. Apparently what they're really saying is you're one of 35 possible things that you could be. Apparently there's only a finite number of possible crystal structures that can be found inside the frozen flecks that cascade down during the wintertime. To help illustrate this fact, chemistry teacher Andy Brunning created a detailed graphic showing all 39 possible forms of solid precipitation, 35 which are snow crystals or flakes. Just the quote here, the study of crystal structures uh, has its own discipline, crystallography, which allows us to determine the arrangement of atoms in these solids. So there you have it. I'll throw the graphic up on the site. Keep using the phrase. The meaning's a lot cooler than the science behind it. Now, you know what we haven't had here in a while? That's right, a story about crop circles. This is from the Inquisitor.com. Crop circles in Mexico appeared over Christmas Eve. That's right, folks. It's a holiday story, too. The sprawling crop formations were accompanied by sightings of strange lights on Christmas Eve. This is actually pretty cool. Members of the press were joined by thousands of onlookers over the holiday when uh, Mexico's Texcoco region became the center of crop circle mysteries that have since captured the public's imagination. Now, as of the recording of this show on the 19th, there's still no explanation for the weird shapes that were found, the extensive crop formation, which spanned an area covering seven hectares. I think that's about... One hectare is like two and a half acres for the conversion here. Uh, appeared overnight on Christmas Eve following a spat of unexplained reports by local residents describing mysterious lights in the sky over the region. Mexico's federal and municipal police have since cordoned off all of the fields to prevent tampering while an investigation is carried out to determine who or what might have produced these patterns. The haphazard nature of the formation, however, in contrast to normal crop circles, which you guys are probably all familiar with, very intricate geometry, uh, to the ones that are found in other parts of the world, this suggests that it might have been the result of some sort of natural phenomenon I'll just add here that aliens occur in nature, too, you know. Unless they're grown, I guess. Like, in a lab. Or a petri dish. Moving on. This is actually a pretty cool video that was posted to the uh, New York Daily News. It's CCTV footage uh, emerged of an alleged ghost wandering the hallways of Pocatello, Idaho High School. The Idaho school has become a, uh, home to a significant number 
of paranormal occurrences over the years, with both students and teachers reporting strange noises, disembodied voices, or sightings of a figure that is thought to haunt one of the auditoriums. Now, a surveillance video recorded in the building during the Christmas holiday is believed to show further evidence that something strange has been going on there. The video, which begins with a a view of a surveillance station and several different camera feeds, zooms into one particular monitor as the footage in question is played back. A strange shadow can be seen moving from doorway on the left before the lights across the whole school seem to flicker intermittently as if in response to the entity's presence. The footage has been the subject of some heated debate since appearing online, and while some believe that it it shows genuine evidence of paranormal activity, others contend that this figure could actually be little more than an insect walking across the camera lens. Now, I'll point out here, yeah, yeah, there have been things debunked as uh, insects, the way that they move, these close shadows, the camera, trying to find focus, but the light thing is pretty unnerving and pretty fun to watch. So check it out. Throw it on the page, facebook.com slash theinvisibleworld. Now, next up, we're going to wind things down here. We're going to keep it short this week. In an end-of-the-year tweet from the Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA just claimed responsibility for decades of UFO sightings from the 1950s through the 70s. The agency posted a declassified document from their Best of 2014 list that was the most read item on their website, uh, at least according to the Irish Times, where this thing popped up. The CIA tweeted a link to a document called the CIA and U2 Program 1954-1974 to and claims the agency was responsible for most of the UFO sightings from that time period, which were many, trust me. The report released from 1998 was the most read document on the agency's website in 2014. The report covers the development of the U-2 spy plane, which I'm sure you guys are either familiar with or Googling by now. The number one most read on, this is the actual tweet, says, number one most read on our, or hashtag, one most read on our hashtag best of 14 list, colon, reports of unusual activity in the skies in the 50s, question mark, it was us. That is what a CIA spokesperson posted on Twitter. During the testing of the plane, increase of UFO reports flooded law enforcement agencies across the country. Uh, an excerpt of, uh, of the report says, High-altitude testing of U-2 of the U-2 soon led to unexpected side effect, a tremendous increase in reports of unidentified flying objects. According to the report, the uh, most commercial uh, airliners operated between an altitude of 10,000 and 20,000 feet. Military aircraft normally flew just under 40,000 feet, so not many people believe that a manned craft could not achieve an altitude higher than that 60,000 feet. Due to the high volume of UFO reports coming into the Air Force, an operational code named Blue Book, it's according to the article, of course, we all know what Blue Book is, was created to collect and investigate all reports of UFO sightings. So, the report goes on to say, UFO reports were most prevalent in the early evening hours from pilots of airliners flying from east to west. When the sun dropped below the horizon of an airliner flying at 20,000 feet, the plane was in darkness. But if a U-2 was airborne in the vicinity 
of that airliner at the same time. Its horizon from the altitude of 60,000 feet was considerably more distant and being so high in the sky, its silver wings could catch and reflect the rays of the sun and appear to the airliner pilot 40,000 feet below to be fiery objects. Consequently, the U- once the U-2s started flying at altitudes above 60,000 feet, air traffic controllers began receiving increasing numbers of UFO reports. Again, that is according to this document. In the report, Operation Blue Book Investigations contacted the CIA on a regular basis to check U-2 flight logs and compare them to UFO sightings. U-2 flights accounted for more than half of all UFO sightings in the 50s and 60s, according to this document. Well, take it for what it is. Another possible explanation for some of the unknowns. Nothing is set in stone, of course. But that does bring me nicely to tonight's final thought. For tonight's final thought, I want to go back to that uh, mention of that new show, UFO History Lesson, from the Paranormal A Radio Network. But seriously, uh, during the show, we got a bunch of live tweets. And one of them asked me specifically, do you actually believe in aliens? You sound very much like a skeptic. Now, to answer that on the show, I think I said something like, it's my job to be a skeptic, or what have you. I made a joke about Terry and myself and, and moved on. You have to be a skeptic. Not just in this, but in most things that you hear right off. But being a skeptic doesn't necessarily mean not believing, at least in the way that we've come to use that word now. The only thing I know for sure is that there are a lot of people who know a lot more than I do, or perhaps ever will. And I trust voices on both ends of that spectrum. To the frustration of most people who ask me on the subject, I'm constantly saying things like, I don't know, or maybe, or I'm cut down the middle, or on the fence, and other weird little colloquialisms which bypass the question of yes or no, black or white believe, disbelieve, what have you. We live in a world of truth. But we did not create that world. We did not create that truth. We're trying to find those truths on a daily basis in everything that we do. We look for it in in, in each other, in the works of those who came before us, and in the new and innovating things that may come tomorrow, including discoveries. Do not confuse a reserved skepticism as the opposite of blind belief. The want is always enduring. However, in a field with such uncertainty, you have to entertain all options, even the ones you don't want to believe. And with that, the first episode of 2015 is done. Big thanks to Trash80 for the intro and outro music. Thanks to the Paranormal A Radio Network for also broadcasting the show and everyone else who shares us around the world. Again, stay tuned for the music special, some very exciting interviews, and on that note, shoot over your ideas for future interviews and show topics. The Invisible World Show at gmail.com and all those other things I said at the top of the show, let me know what you want to hear. And of course, if you are in the New York City area this Thursday, check out the show, bring your friends, heck, bring your enemies, and hang out a bit after with me at the bar. It's going to be a blast, I assure you. Thank you so much to everyone here and everyone out there. This has been The Invisible World. I'm Frank Todaro reminding you to be good to each other and keep looking forward. 